0: Please be seated. Well, last week we started to look at how we might prepare more effectively, not just for Christmas, but for Christ Himself. And the answer is in one word, a one word sermon repent. And I know that talking to several of you, repentance is not exactly a subject that we like to talk about very often, especially. Not at Christmas, it doesn't sound all that fun. It's not the usual tiding of comfort and joy, is it? Repent. And uh, I think some of this reluctance to repent is because many of us don't know what it really is. Perhaps when you hear, hear the word "repent," you, you feel anything but joyful and comforted. Perhaps you feel joyless and, and discomforted, perhaps. The command to repent reminds you of your sin, or that in some way you've failed, or perhaps it reminds you that someone has failed you and you wish that they would repent. The thing is, over and over and over again in Mark's gospel, we're told that we should repent, and we're told that our repentance is in some way linked to the good news. So whatever it is, it can't be all that bad. And in your Bibles, let's turn to Mark chapter 1 and dig a little further into this subject of repentance this morning. Mark 1, verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Proclaiming, as we've seen before, is is no ordinary kind of a speech. It's not a conversation. It's not an instruction. It's not a teaching. It's not an exhortation. It's not a rebuke. Proclaiming is a word that often we just translate preaching. That is, publishing a divine truth with authority, but in a persuasive way. It is declaring that something has been done, and then inviting people, in light of the thing that has been done, to respond in some way. A herald, an official, a town choir, would proclaim things. that the scholar, James Edwards, not James Edwards in the choir, but the scholar James Edwards, says that uh, this thing here, this proclamation, is, is like Jesus Christ's opening press conference. It is his statement of intent, that there's something landing here, this thing that is proclaimed, there is is something new, this gospel, this evangel, this tiding of comfort and joy, this news is good, we're being told. Not that it sounds all that good at first. Where is he? Galilee, complete dump. I'm really resisting uh, the urge to, to give a sort of modern analogy because um, I don't know if anyone in our church is from West Virginia. But, Gallant. <laughs> oh, three of you. I'm so sorry. Um, do please hand your pledge cards in all the same. So dump whatever this good news is, he has picked a pretty obscure place to proclaim it. And uh, the last person to go out and proclaim the good news, John the Baptist, of whom we heard last week, it says here, has just been arrested. Literally, uh, betrayed or handed over is what the word means. The word arrest means betray or hand over. It's the very same word that is used eight times later in Mark's gospel for what they did to Jesus himself. And it's the same word that is used three times later in Mark's gospel for what they do to his followers. If you are going to proclaim the good news, you're going to run into trouble. Those who proclaim the gospel are often sent out to obscure places and then attacked by those living there with a vested interest In maintaining the status quo. What is the good news? What is it in a word? The gospel in a word is Jesus. He is the good news. Jesus is the good news. His birth, his death, his resurrection and his return for you is also part of the good news. I've challenged many of you here to be able to proclaim the gospel in ten words. The birth, death, resurrection, and return of Jesus for you. You can use semicolons if you have to to shorten the sentence. But every one of us ought to be able to proclaim the good news in ten words. Because we can do it in one. Jesus is the good news. His birth, death, resurrection, and return for you is the good news. His fulfillment of God's promise to save you is the good news. His transfer of you, as we heard in the the opening preface to this service, uh, from the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of death, where every single one of us is by default, into the kingdom of light and life, where some of us have arrived, is the good news. The fact that he does all of this for free for you, Is good news. Who he is is good news. What he does is good news. How he does it is good news. His exchange of places with you, he's now in the kingdom of darkness. His exchanging of places, his sacrifice, atonement, ransom, punishment, curse, whatever Old Testament phrase you wish to find fulfilled in Christ for you while at the same time you get his justification and adoption and freedom and healing and even the power and the presence of his Holy Spirit in your hearts is good news. All of that. And although it is good news, if you walk around proclaiming that, that all you need to enter heaven and get right with God and belong there is Jesus you are going to put out of business a lot of people who trade on something else, on the fear that it is really, really deep down on you. Anyone who makes a dollar from telling people that you have one more thing to do to get right with God is not going to welcome you and your proclaiming of the good news. Every author of every self-help book, every huckster, Charlatan and quack, every proponent of ascetic works and spiritualism and pietism and legalism, every false teacher, guru or priest who places themselves, dares to place themselves between you and God, and says, you need me, and you need my rules, and my way, and my magic hands, and my stuff to get to him, is now suddenly running scared in the light of your proclamation. They have been exposed. They have been rendered obsolete. Every person who makes a buck telling you that you just need to add one more thing will take a dim view of this proclamation because it threatens them and it dethrones them and it bankrupts them and it leaves them in the same place as every other human ever to have walked this earth, just a normal person who needs the grace of God. And I think Jesus beginning the story and Mark beginning the account of the story of Jesus with reference to the arrest of John is telling us that That good news for the proclaimee is often bad news for the proclaim or. John the Baptist, we heard last week, seeing people burdened, worn out with religion, layers of rules, and the mortification of the flesh, and things to do to get right with God works just starts reaching vast numbers of people in the wilderness from every city and and place in the region with a radical new movement by simply proclaiming what? Grace. Take your works, get rid, and receive grace. The gospel of God. The good news. He saves you. Now actually last week Mark called it the gospel of Jesus. Notice now how he calls it the gospel of God. The inference is clear. Jesus is God. It's both of our gospel. And if Jesus is God then the good news is that for all of our running around trying to do the right thing and wear the right stuff and say the right things and bow in the right places and do this that and the other and keeping all of the rules in public whilst at the same time running around in secret and doing all the wrong things and Hoping no one finds out, he has approached you. While you busied yourself on a cocktail of works and sin, God Himself has shown up and is now knocking at the door of your heart. And this is why Jesus says, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. You see it there? The time is fulfilled. Well, God's been promising for generations over and over again in the Old Testament, hundreds of detailed prophecies written hundreds of years before They were fulfilled in Christ. He's been promising to come and to dwell with them, coming and stepping into their world to anoint a Messiah, to redeem them, to become their king and dwell with them in flesh and to rule with authority and power and yet serve with tenderness and humility at the same time. And Jesus, Mark says, is the fulfillment of each of those enormous promises that they had written on their hearts and hoped to wake up and see each day. He is the fulfillment of all of their hope. He is the time they have been waiting for. He is the gospel. He is the time. There are two Greek words in in the Bible for time, two different ones, kronos and kairos. And uh, chronos is the word from which we get to English words like chronological, and it just means the measurable passing of the hours, the ticking away, the moments that make up a dull day. Amen. There we go. <laughs> you know, there's always one person who listens to Dark Side of the Moon and gets a Pink Floyd lyric, <laughs> and it's quoted to them: "You do and waste the hours in an offhand way." You rock you're rocking your right to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking, racing around to come back on you again. Yeah, 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 I love it. It's good. It's the best album ever. Chronos. The ticking away, the moments that make up a dull day, the, the measurable passing of the hours. Tick tock, tick tock. That's chronos. Not the word that Mark uses to use for time. He uses the weird God word. He uses the word kairos. Kairos is, is far more suffused with, with purpose than that sort of existential crisis that Pink Floyd would lament on that album. It's the idea that, that actually... God's fulfillment is is here that the fullness of God's redemptive plan is now being made manifest in your presence It's not about the measure of the time. It is about the meaning of the time this word kairos Well, it's why the kairos prison ministry is called what it is It's clever. It's a kind of bad greek joke. It's not very funny But it is clever While you were locked up in jail, literally doing time and counting the days and scratching a tally chart on the wall, God is at work redeeming the days. The idea of the Kairos prison ministry is that if you have received Jesus Christ in jail, you in fact can have more meaning in your life and more freedom in your life than those out there at liberty in the land of the free. Kairos. Such a great ministry, such a great word, such good news. Jesus is the kairos moment they've been waiting for. He is the meaning of the moment. He is the good news. He is the time. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is now at hand. The whole of it, the whole kingdom is now at hand. In Christ, Jesus himself, not just God, but the entire kingdom of God has has shown up and is now standing at your door. God has, has parked a battleship on your front lawn in Christ Jesus. He's, he's making a sovereign statement here, a tank. A Sort of a mobile piece of, of territory capturing equipment has been placed there in your midst. The kingdom is nigh. This is a major statement, an invasion, if you like, of this fallen world in Christ Jesus. He is now there, whether you are in a prison cell or a mansion, he is now there and he is making a claim on your territory. His rule, his reign, his sovereign authority, his presence has approached has come nigh, is manifest now. It's a, a spatial word, not a temporal word that is being used here. He is physically close. The kingdom of God is at hand. It doesn't mean it's a, about to do something, tick tock, tick tock. It means it is literally there in, in, in the flesh. It's a great verb to have chosen at hand. Because it it also gives the sense, I think, that although Christ is here, Christ is manifest, Christ is dwelling and has brought his kingdom with him personally at your door, there is yet more to come. It's at hand, it's sort of here, but there's more here to come. That reading from Revelation that we heard just a few moments ago tells us this, that, that God has come in Christ Jesus and in a more meaningful way, has died in Christ Jesus, in a more meaningful way, has risen from the grave in Christ Jesus, in a more meaningful way, has ascended to the right hand of his Father, where he is now seated and rules in a more meaningful way, and he will come again, and his kingdom will have new end no end, as he creates a new heaven and a new earth, and completes and consummates his kingdom. It's here, and it's coming. It's now, and it's... It's not yet. The kingdom is at hand. The reason why it has not yet come, in all of its fullness, is because there are yet people to respond. There are yet people still living in the wrong kingdom, and God wants to transfer them into the kingdom of light and life where he dwells. So what shall we do? What are we going to do with all this good news It's a one-word sermon series, church. You know what you're going to do. Repent. The gospel in a word is Jesus. The response in a word is repent. Now, a few weeks ago, we were at a friend's house. The children had been unusually quiet in the basement games room where they were playing. And after a while, we were over at another friend's house. We'd taken Uh, Some other friends with us. After a while, Josh Narocki came up and he said to us, "Uh, Pastor, do you have a key? I was like, hmm. (laughs) This is going to be a good story. A key? (laughs) What do you need a key for, Josh? He said, "Uh, Ben's right there. That's enough. Right. (laughs) We need a key. Ben's. Right, okay. There's a worry now starting to loom He continued, in handcuffs. Now, some context for you. Last summer, we were traveling around the UK. We went to an army surplus store for some backpacks and water bottles and normal family kit that normal families purchase, that kind of a thing. Hannah May, in the military army surplus store, also have picked up a pair of military-grade handcuffs. The paratrooper that runs the store may well have warned us about this particular purchase of the military-grade handcuffs, and she may may well subsequently have taken them to school and may well have lent them to a friend who, for the sake of argument, will call Mary McSorley. <laughs> we may well have all gone round to RJ's house, uh, her father, uh, and at this point in the story, there's a little bit of inconsistency in some of the witness evidence the exact who did what to whom Um, but the gist of the story is that Ben got locked up and uh, I'm sure you've guessed they lost the key after a very very quiet search they started to come upstairs looking sheepish followed eventually by Ben in chains was he sorry yes he was very very sorry Had he turned from his foolish ways and firmly resolved never to do this again? Oh, yes. Was he now a penitent wretch? Yes. He'd even got a little smudge of something and put it on his face to make himself look more pitiful. Did any of the feeling in his heart or resolution in his mind never to do this again, somehow just magically break open his chains? No, because these are military-grade handcuffs and they had lost the key. After about an hour of searching all around the place, we eventually realized that there was only one hope left to us at this time of night, and that was, of course, to go to the Fox Chapel Police Department. (laughs) Now, friends, this is not something I ever, ever, ever want to do again. But hi, sir. I can explain what you're about to see. I'm a pastor. My son is in handcuffs. Can you help us please? Uh, even better than all of this, my, my son, Ben, chip off the old block, was starting to see the usefulness of the story, and he even started to preach a little bit to the police officer in the police station. He said, He said, These handcuffs are like my sin. I'm like, mate, can you shut up? You are not making us look any more normal. The, uh, the police officer was useless. Anyway, just in case you ever want to know, for whatever reason, uh, all the police departments here in Western PA use the very same type of American-made handcuffs, and mine, being military-grade handcuffs in the UK, were, of course, made in China. <laughs> uh, critically, they use a very different type of a key. So we uh, We left still with my son in handcuffs. We got back in the car. We started to think, you know, what are we going to do? We started to speculate. The police are useless. Uh, I wonder where we can't... What what would the world do? What sage advice would the world have for us right now about this? Well, the world, i.e. my wife and an elder of this very church, both suggested the very same thing. They both said to me, well... There are certain places that you could go at this time of night to get a key for handcuffs. I'll just give you a few moments. Yeah, bad enough at the police station. You don't think I'm going to go to one of those places, do you? Hi, I'm a pastor. I've got this child that I've locked up. And I thought I'd bring him here to your establishment to buy another pair. No, I don't think so. Eventually, we just went home, and we started to get some tools, some long handles, sort of screwdrivers and things, and just started wailing and surprising on the stuff, managed to break the chains, but the cuffs are still on. His little wrists are there, you know, pretty delicate things. So, started to get a screwdriver and a chisel and hammer and drill and poke and pliers and just gently tapped and tapped and tapped away at the thing and, and, until I managed finally, finally, to break him out of these, these chains. And uh, why am I telling you all of this story? <laughs> Apart from, you know, it feels good. Um, because repentance, church, is never going to be about saving yourself. Ben's penitent feelings and thoughts were powerless to release him from the military-grade handcuffs. And, 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 and will he do it again? Probably. Probably. He's my son. But I love him. Will I break him out again? Yeah, of course I will. Repentance is never going to be about saving yourself. It's it's always going to be about approaching the only person who can. And what I really, really love about this story, I mean, you could use it so many different ways, but what I love about it is that throughout the whole ordeal, Ben was completely calm. So many other kids would be freaking out about this, wouldn't they? As the other kids kind of, you know, poke them and take photographs and put things on their face and just take advantage of the situation, laughing at them. So many other kids would be in fear. They're uncomfortable. They were firmly gripped. You'd be in a bit of pain. So many kids would be having a meltdown, but not Ben. Ben was joking about the whole thing To be honest, he was preaching in the middle of it, and he was astonishingly relaxed about the whole thing. Why? Because he firmly believed that his father could get him out. And Jesus says in verse 15, Repent and believe in the gospel. So if repentance is about turning from the bad news then belief is about trusting in the good news. Ben believed that Cat and I could break him out. That's why he came to us. That's why he approached us. He believed that he wouldn't get in more trouble, but believed and trusted that we would get him out of it. This word belief here is synonymous with the word trust. It's if Mark doesn't use it anywhere else, John uses this phrase all the time. pistua en, belief in. It's, it's synonymous with trust. It's not an intellectual assent to an abstract set of propositions here. It is a heartfelt, holistic trust in the one who makes the promises. The, the tense of the language. It gives the indication that this is an ongoing mode of being trusting in. And being believing in, not a one off, but a relationship. And that is why Ben came to us. Not a one off, but a relationship. We have an ongoing relationship of trust, so we trusted in the fact that we could break him out. Knew he would not be in trouble, knew we would find it funny, probably even knew it would make the sermon. Uh, Only with his permission does a story like this get into a sermon. I don't just tell tales on my kids. I want them to be believers when they leave home. (laughs) So uh, this is his story. It's his sermon. It's his illustration, not really mine. And, And if you see Ben after, I want you to encourage him. I want you to go up to him and say, that was a great illustration. That really helped me understand my sin and my redemption from it. I want you to encourage him. This is my boy. This is first sermon illustration. Saints, you've got to get stories like this. My 10-year-old can lead people to Christ and proclaim the good news even when he's enchained. i just just go up to him and just say, hey, mate, I really just thought that was great. Thank you for letting us hear that story. Well done. Yeah, well done. Please do that for, for, for our family. It would be a great gift to a pastor's son who lives in the fishbowl. And you just say, yeah, you help me. Thank you. Why did he trust? You know, for the same reason I trust you with the story. Because it is funny. And, and it's good. And it shows how a relationship with God can be so freeing. And Ben brought us his pain because he knew that we could get him out of it. In Romans, Paul the Apostle says the same thing as Ben the little Apostle. Romans 2, 4 Paul says, do you not know? And I don't know what the Greek word for this exactly is, because scholars hypothesize that it's there in its absence. But the the Greek word, um, the, comes up next. Do you not know? (laughs) It's obvious. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Our hearts are meant to break for those who don't know it, who haven't seen this. Oh, it's obvious. God's kindness is meant to lead you to turn to Him. Don't you know this, saints? This is the good news. It's precisely because God has come for you, proclaiming news that is good, that He can save you, and indeed He will, that anyone in the right mind would want to take their embarrassing captivity and pain and turn and repent and believe that someone could break them free from it. What are we going to do, church? We're going to repent, and we're going to believe in the kindness of God to break us free. Amen.